So we're going to be talking on, on that spiritual battle. We're, we're in the midst of a spiritual battle. You say, I don't know if I want to be in this battle or not. You don't have much choice. We are in the battle. The enemy will attack. Our choice is what are we going to do in the midst of that battle? Are we going to stand? If we're going to stand, how will I stand? How, how can I stand in the midst of this battle? And Paul has laid out for it now. He's got to the point in Ephesians where he said, okay, those foundations that I laid, that which I prepared us for in terms of the spiritual battle, now this, these this is, let me lay it out really clearly now. These are the pieces. This is what you need to put into play. This is what you need to know in order to stand against the enemy's attacks because the enemy isn't going to attack. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, against principalities and power, against spiritual wickedness in the heavenly places, and we need to stand against those attacks. They do come. They will come. They are, you're already experiencing it. You're you're experiencing his deception. You're experiencing his distractions. You're experiencing accusations. You're experiencing guilt trips. You're experiencing troubles that are allowed to come into your life that the enemy would use to destroy you. And in the midst of all of that, how will you stand? And in that stand, if you stand in the midst of all these attacks, all this stuff coming at you, if you stand in the midst of that attack, you, 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 you glorify God. You're like in the story of Job, where the enemy, the accuser, comes before God and all of heaven, and, and God says, have you considered my servant Job? He says, oh, yeah, yeah, Job just serves you because, you know, you guard him, you keep him safe, you give him all this good stuff, you take care of him, so he, so he, he, he does what you say because, I mean, he knows where his bread's buttered. And God says, okay, well, I'll let you, I'll let you go so far. You know, I'm, I'm watching you what God says to Satan, but I'll let you go so far because God is demonstrating that Job's faith is much deeper than that. Job's faith is real. Job stands. So what would I do if the enemy were to attack me? Well, we find out day by day, don't we? Because he does. And we say, Lord, by your grace, I want to stand. What does it take? That's what Paul's going through. He says it takes Knowing truth. It takes girding yourself with truth, being aware of truth, tucking up in the loose ends, knowing what God has said, guiding your life by God's truth that answers the enemy's lies. A belt of truth, a breastplate of righteousness, that I'm not worthy for this battle, and yet I have been made righteous in Christ, and yet I can step into. I can, I can live according to God's truth. I can, I can let God's righteousness rule in my life by his word and by his spirit so that I don't leave these opportunities for the enemy to attack me from. I don't give him more chances of accusation. I I live according to God's light and God's truth. I walk with the Lord in his light, in his righteousness, guarding my heart, guarding my head. And then we come in verses 15 and 16 in Romans chapter 6, and we're on page 979, if you're using the church Bible. And in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 15 and 16, he, he unpacks two more, two more pieces of that armor. So we dealt with the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness. This week, we're looking at more basics for battle. And these are really basic. It starts like this. You're going to go into the battle? First thing you need to be sure you've done is, what would you tell your children? They're headed off into battle. Maybe it's your kids in soccer, and they've got their soccer cleats on, or some places they call them boots, and they've got their, their shoes on, but what do they need to be sure and do? Tie your shoes. So I said we're talking battle basics. We're going to talk real basics. The first thing you need to do is tie your shoes. What am I talking about when I say tie on your shoes? Well, look at Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 15. 
as shoes for your feet. Let's back up, verse 14, just to catch the context. Stand therefore. The enemy is going to attack you. You can withstand his, his attacks. You can stand firm. So, verse 14, again, fourth time in four verses. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, guard your head, guard your heart, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness of the gospel of peace. For shoes for your feet... You need something on your feet. Okay, imagine the shoulder, imagine the, the soldier. He's getting ready to go. He's getting outfitted. He's just heard the command from his sergeant, gear up, we're moving out. So what does he do? The first thing he does is he wraps his loins with his belt of truth, which is like a big, thick belt, kind of a girdle thing with an apron. It protects him. So, And this way we're not going to see his boxer shorts either. This is all a good thing, okay? First thing he does is he wraps himself with that belt of truth. Good and then he puts on a breastplate of righteousness. So he's, he's guarding his heart. He's guarding his vital organs with that breastplate. Okay. Well, the next thing, what comes after that? Well, essentials. Talk about most basics. We haven't even got to the helmet yet. He puts on his shoes. Perfect. Four shoes. If you were the soldier, if you were getting dressed, what are you going to put on your feet? For shoes, for your feet, the gospel of peace. The readiness of the gospel of peace. Now, the Roman soldiers... They're, they would wear either sandals or boots. I, I think it was kind of a weather thing and a climate thing and a terrain thing, but either the sandals or the boots, they had about a three-quarter inch, very thick leather sole. In that leather sole, they had these hobnails. And I had to remind myself, what are hobnails? I couldn't remember what hobnails were, but hobnails, I, I, I need to go back in my mind to logger boots. Because our, our combat boots, when I was in the Air Force, didn't have, didn't have hobnails in the boots, but logger boots did. And hobnails are kind of like some of those things you can also wear in icy ground where you've got all these little tiny spikes on the bottom of your shoe. And it gives you a firm fitting, a firm footing. So when loggers are climbing over all the wet logs and stuff in the forest, right, they, their, 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 their shoes will dig into, their boots will dig into those logs a little bit because they're wet and slippery, but they won't slide. They won't lose their footing. They will have a sure footing because they prepared their foot with this solid boot with these little spiky nails on the bottom of it. That's what the Roman soldiers had as well. They had a very firm footing when they would go into battle. It wasn't real heavy. It wasn't long spikes. It wasn't like cleats that are going to, like baseball cleats that are going to dig in and possibly even trip them up, but their feet are not going to slide, okay? So these hobnails, these cleats of spikes gave them a firm ground to stand, and Paul depicts believers that way. What does he say? He says, stand firm, stand your ground. You're getting ready to go. You're going to advance, and you want to advance with the gospel, but the gospel you're going to advance with, you're going to advance by that same gospel in which you stand. We tell others what we ourselves also stand in, that our firm footing, even when the enemy would try to push us out of place, our firm footing is from the same very gospel that we would want to tell others. That's what gives us our tranquility of mind. That, that, that's what gives us our security of heart. What God has said to us about what he's done for us in Christ. Prepare, you, pre prepare yourself for your, for, your, for your feet the readiness or the preparation of the gospel of peace. He's, he tells a soldier, he tells believers to put it on. When I was in the Air Force... In basic training, we, you would think we're learning the basics of battle there, right? We weren't, really. Uh, it was more of a training just in terms of military, do what you're told. Uh, if I'd learned that in kindergarten, maybe I wouldn't have had to learn it in basic training. But as it was, I needed to learn that in basic training. My job, one of my jobs in basic training, I was the shoe aligner. Now, this I understand in military terms is a very important job. 
You see, because we'd have people inspecting our dormitory every day, and somehow, for the security of the United States, it was very important that every one of our shoes were perfectly aligned underneath the edge of our bed, all of them touching one another and the last shoe touching the bedpost. And they were perfectly in line with those bedposts. That was very important. I'm not sure why the Russians cared, but apparently they did. They were intimidated by my shoe aligning. I was among the best. Our shoes were aligned. I don't know that the Roman soldiers had shoe aligners. They certainly didn't have shoe putter honors. Each one had to put their own shoes on. So do we. Somebody else can't do this for you. I can tell you the gospel, but you've got to take it. You're the one that's got to put it on. You're the one that's going to outfit yourself. And when you're talking with somebody else, are you going to answer them out of what you think? Or are you going to answer them out of the good news of what it is that Jesus has done? We've got to put on that gospel ourselves. The middle voice says, put on for yourselves the gospel of peace. Prepare your feet with a readiness that comes from the gospel. Now, this gospel is a gospel of peace. It's a gospel of peace with God, that God has made peace for us. The Bible tells us, Ephesians 2, in fact, Paul's, Paul's laid this out in context. Ephesians 2, you want to know about the gospel chapter? It's chapter 2. The gospel of peace, it's chapter 2, where he says that Jesus is our peace. He has made peace for us with God. Romans 5, he says that therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That there was, there was hostility. I had rebelled. I was accountable. I was in trouble. Jesus took that trouble. He took the guilt. He took the condemnation that I deserved. And he has made peace between myself and God. Not only that, he's made peace horizontally between humanity and among humanity. He has made peace among us in this room. There's all kinds of things that we could differ in. It's kind of fun to watch the church and to watch different people. It's kind of discouraging to watch Facebook during the political season. You have all this stuff coming up and people are so different and so divided and yet we have all of Jesus Christ in common. That's the unity. And even across this room, as, because I've had conversations with different ones, you, I know that you don't all agree politically. <gasps> oh, who are they, you want to know? Who are they, point them? No, no, we have all of Jesus Christ in common. That's where our peace lies. No matter our different perspectives about lots of other things, no matter that some of us might be, might be wealthy and some of us are not, and some of us uh, think this is important, and some of us are still stuck watching the 49ers, <laughs> Cleveland, something. you know. But still, we have all of Jesus Christ in common. No matter what else gets in the way, no matter what else seems important, he is our peace. And in Ephesians chapter 2, the peace emphasis is not peace with God. The peace that is emphasized is the peace that we have with one another. We need to guard that. We need to guard that. It's important. When we come to the shield, you'll find out why that's important. We need to guard that peace together. We need to take action and steps that we guard that peace together. In fact, Paul says when he gets to chapter 4 in Ephesians, he said, keep Guard it, protect it, exercise it. It's, you've been given this peace, now you keep it. Keep the unity of the Spirit, which is the bond of peace. God has given us a bond in his church of peace together. But it's up to us to keep it. It's kind of like at the end of that 50 years ago, Bill and Lois. 50 years ago, they were pronounced husband and wife. And it was up to them to keep it. So it is with the peace that we have as believers together. What are we going to make most important? 
because we have been given peace together. And that's a peace that can overflow out of us in toward others and impact others. How is it that the gospel gives peace among people? How is it that the gospel gives us peace with people around us, even people that would mistreat us? Well, first of all, it eliminates pride. It eliminates any self that I might have in terms of self-righteousness. I'm holier than thou. No, the gospel tells me I'm not. The gospel tells me that I was dead in sin and in desperate need of a Savior, just like you and just like everybody else. It's all level ground at the cross. So the, so the cross gets any, the, the gospel of peace gives, gets any misunderstanding that I might have about how good I am. It just pushes that right out of the way. No, we all are broken people in a broken world in desperate need of a Savior. It eliminates pride, self-righteousness. The gospel prepares us against the enemy's schemes. If, if we live out that gospel of peace in terms of forgiveness toward one another, in terms of humility to one another, care for one another's needs, this, this negates the enemy's attempts to, to, to activate his schemes of bitterness, anger, envy, slander, the kind of things that would divide us apart. The gospel of peace doesn't have room for that. Even if what, I, what somebody says about another person is true, the gospel covers that. And even if what somebody says about what they said about me was true. The gospel is my forgiveness, and the gospel is the basis upon which I must forgive them. The gospel provides peace over all the kinds of things, if we'll step into it. The gospel provides the peace that binds a church together in the Spirit's unity. Now, if that readiness to stand in the gospel of peace blunts the enemy's attack, living out the gospel, has got to make him furious. Imagine, we live out the gospel in our lives, in forgiveness, in peace toward one another, in, in peacefulness in the midst of all this angst and divide all across. The, if, we, if, if we are centered in Christ and at peace, that must drive him nuts. The gospel lived is the story of our enemy's decision defeat, that Jesus would even lay himself down. He would be wronged for the sake of others when we'll live there because we're at peace. Man, that's hard to fight against. It's hard to fight against. It's hard, it's hard to be angry toward. It's, it, it's hard to hate somebody that won't fight back. Somebody who prays for you when you persecute them. The testimony that this gospel of peace can have and how it advances if we live in it. Because this gospel of peace, it also has the idea of readiness. The readiness of the gospel of peace. Maybe that comes from Exodus. The same word is used there, the readiness. That you're ready having your sandals on, having your feet shod. The same words are used here. And in Exodus, in the gospel of the Passover, Exodus chapter 12, that they're not sitting down for dinner. They're standing up for dinner. It's very unusual among Israelites, but they're standing up for dinner because the gospel of readiness is a gospel that's ready to go because God is leading them out. God is delivering them that very night. And the same gospel that gives us peace is a gospel of readiness. It's the gospel that advances. Again, what we stand firm on is also what we advance with, this gospel of peace that is peace for us, peace with others, and peace for others also. I don't know about you, I want, I want others around me in the midst of angst, in the midst of trouble, in the midst of the uncertainties of life and even death. I want others to have this peace that I have in Christ. 
that no matter what else happens, no matter how things go, I can rest in God. I can have peace in my God and Savior who holds all of it in his own hands. I want others to have that too. And so this gospel of peace is a gospel that's shared. I can't, I can't help but think, but Paul has in his mind Isaiah 52, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. Proclaiming peace, announcing news of happiness, happiness, blessedness, fullness of life, deliverance. Deliverance into what life is supposed to be and intended by God to be. All the blessing of the Beatitudes, that's, what, that's the happiness, the fullness of life. And here you imagine, out of Isaiah 52, you imagine a city under siege. And its warriors, they have gone out to meet the enemy before the enemy comes and surrounds and besieges the city and traps them all inside to slowly starve to death. Well, the, their warriors go out to meet this enemy, hopefully on more favorable ground. And those who are left behind, too old or too young to engage in the battle. And they're, they're left in the city and they're awaiting word. What is happening out there? They have no internet. Thankfully, they have no 24-7 news cycle. And so they wait. And they wait. And then look over the ridge. Somebody's coming. And they're not sure if First, who it is, but the fact that it's a runner, the fact that it's somebody running back with news of the battle, and even by the way that he's running, there's a skip in his step. It's good news. Oh, how lovely to see on the mountaintops, on the ridgeline there, how lovely to see the, the feet of the one who's bringing good news, the news of our deliverance, the news that we've been saved, that God met the enemy in the battle there and we will live and have be freed from the enemy who had threatened us. That's the image that's in Paul's mind here. We bring that news that there has been a victory. It was one on Calvary's cross. The enemy already knows about it, but he doesn't want your friend to know. He doesn't want your neighbor to know. He doesn't want the people you work with to know. We want them to know. God wants them to know. And you can have those beautiful feet wonderfully equipped and readied with the gospel of peace, the gospel in which you stand and the gospel which you bring to others. Paul says, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome other also. Which is odd because Paul's writing to the Roman church. He's writing to Christians in Rome. He says, I can't wait to get to you and preach the gospel. Obviously, it must have been a Baptist church. Desperately needed the gospel, right? No, we do. We do. We need the gospel. Paul says, I can't wait to get to the church there in Rome. And you're a great church. You're doing wonderful things. And I am so thrilled that the gospel has gone to Rome even ahead of me. And I can't wait to get there to preach among you that you will be strengthened by what I share and I'll be strengthened. That's what Paul's envisioning, that they will strengthen one another in a like precious faith. He said, because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And the shame isn't a casual embarrassment, you know, but people are going to think I'm silly. No, it's it, ashamed was the idea of disappointing. That which you had believed in has been shown to be a fraud. It's not real. It's fake. It's like somebody that, that is sold a, a, a sweepstakes or a, a lottery ticket, but it's a forgery. It seems to have all the numbers, and so they, they, they buy it, and they pay $2,000 for it, and they take it in, they go to claim it, and they find out they were duped. They were had. It's not real. And they're shamed. 
Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God to salvation. There is nothing to be disappointed in here. Perhaps we should define that gospel, that good news, announcing peace, proclaiming news of happiness, blessedness, fullness of life, life as God wants us to have it. The gospel is more than just the forgiveness of sins, although that is essential. But the gospel is also restored to God's purpose. You have a lot of people around you who need God's forgiveness in Christ, but that doesn't really click with them. That's not what they're thinking about. Part of what they're thinking about maybe is, isn't life supposed to be more than this? I'm caught on this rat rail, rat race. I'm running in a hamster wheel. I'd love to get off. It feels like life has got to be something more than this, but I don't know what it is. I can sense that it's supposed to. And they see something in you that tells them there's something more, but they don't know what it is. What is this fullness of life? What was I made for? What was I born for? What was I created for? Because there's a creator. There's one who made me and he formed me and he made me to live out his image, his likeness in the midst of creation. There's a fullness, happiness, blessedness of life that is ours because of the gospel. And there are people around us that are hungry for that that we can invite them into. You know, Christians often want to move into something deeper, fuller, you know, past the gospel. Okay, you've been saved, now what? Let's get into some of the nuances of, of abstract theology or let's get into the practicalities. Let's focus all about have a, how to have a happy marriage, how to have a happy family, how to have a successful work and career. And, and, but there's nothing deeper than the gospel. There's nothing more profound than the gospel. There's nothing else that we ought to focus on more. If you center in the gospel and the implications of its forgiveness, and if it's grace towards you and thus grace toward others, that will change your marriage. That will change how you parent. That will change how you relate to other people and influence that you have upon them. There's nothing more profound, truly deeper than the gospel itself. The preparation of the gospel of peace, that is, that is the strength of our stand, no matter what the enemy brings against us. And he will come against us. This brings us to the next piece of armor. The fact that he will come against us. There will be darts. We've got, we've got the basics of battle. We've got, we've got the belt of truth. We've got the breastplate of righteousness. We are living and walking in God's ways. And we are walking in God's ways with our feet secure in the gospel of peace. We have a firm footing. We have a message to carry. We can advance as that runner proclaiming good news. And yet as we advance, we can expect opposition. And so he says, and in all these things, or with all of these things, uh, the ESV actually talks about in all circumstances, and that certainly would be true as well, but it seems, it seems grammatically that, that other translations that you might have in front of you, like the NIV, that talk about in all of these things, or with all these, that would be a very literal translation, with all these, take up the shield of faith. Okay, you've got your shoes, you've got your belt, you've got your breastplate, but with all of those, that seems the basic equipment. I feel like maybe next I would need the helmet. But no, he says, with all these things that are guarding you, don't forget, don't leave behind the shield of faith. Now, as I described to you with the kids, that shield is pretty big. It's bulky. I'm reminded of the um, episode in, I think it's Joshua chapter 7. In chapter 8, which is right after Joshua chapter 6. And Joshua chapter 6 is where they go around and around the wall and the walls come a-tumbling down. They believed God. It seemed silly. 
but they simply did what God said, and God caused those walls to collapse. And after that, and it was so great, it was wonderful, look what God did, and probably a little bit of, <laughs> look what we did. Boy, you see us march there. We went round, and we went round, and we went round. Boy, we took that city of Jericho, and they were feeling it. And then there's this little town of Ai up the hill, and they said, you know, Ai's up there, but Ai is nothing compared to Jericho. Don't worry about Ai. Don't, don't, send, send a handful of guys up there. They can handle it. They got their behinds kicked. It didn't go well at all because they were confident in themselves. And can I say it? They left their shield of faith behind. For this little skirmish, we don't need it. For this little skirmish up the hill, it's not worth caring. And he says, don't leave it behind. I know it's heavy. I know it's bulky. But you're going to need it because the arrows will fly. And in all these things, with all these other things, take up the shield of faith. Don't forget your shield. It's a large rectangular body shield. I said it was, it was two and a half to three feet wide, four to six feet tall, several inches thick. It was made out of wood. The wood would dry out, and so it's not terribly heavy. If it was metal, it would have been heavier. Also, if they made them out of metal, I guess they would have had less metal to make things like spearheads and arrowheads and swords. So they made them out of heavy wood. And the thing about that faith shield is it's large enough that it forms this big, almost a door-like wall that you can, you can hide behind. So what happens in warfare is they figure out new ways of doing things. And when you figure out new ways of attacking, people figure out new ways of defending against that. And so you figure out a new way to counter the new kind of defense with a new... Let me tell you how this happened. So Armies would be coming in. There's a horde of them. There's a bunch of them. And once they get close, we get into hand-to-hand combat. We don't have a chance. There's simply too many of them. What can we do about it? Well, if we use our archers to send wave after wave of arrows upon them, we will eliminate a lot of them before they ever get close. And if we're uphill and they're downhill, our arrows will go farther than theirs, and we can eliminate a bunch of them with our arrows before they have a chance to get close to us and take us out. Okay? That's a pretty good strategy, isn't it? especially if you live at the top of the hill. Don't buy land at the bottom of the hill, okay? All right. Well, the, the Roman army came up with an answer to that. We will build shields. We will build big ones. And our big shields will be big enough that we can lock them together and they will form a solid wall as we advance. Or if you're raining stuff down on us from above, we will hold these shields over our heads and in our column, which is four, six, or eight wide and however many deep, it'll be all covered with a solid ceiling of shields and these, these arrows can fly through the air and they will stick into our shields and we won't lose a man. That's a pretty good defense. That's a pretty good answer to the wave upon wave of arrows flying through the air, right? What are we going to do about that? Well, what if we tied some, a bundle of stuff that we filled with a sticky pitch from the trees or a tar that would catch on fire and it wouldn't easily go out? And we will put that on the tip of the arrows. Not a lot, but a small enough amount. We can't have too much. It'll burn the tip off the arrow before the thing even gets there. But we'll put that at the tip of the arrow. And, and then we have a guy, probably who used to be the shoe aligner. And when the arrows are ready to fly among the whole line of archers, some guy with a torch comes along and he lights all of those arrows. He lights every one of them. And then they all fly at once. And you have this beautiful display of flaming arrows flying through the night. It looks just like Ryan's fireworks. 
And when they land on that solid ceiling of wooden shields, nobody gets hit by an arrow, but the pitch spread, goes thunk, and it spreads out along the, the flaming pitch, spreads out over that nice dry wooden shield, and what happens? The shield catches on fire. And the soldier's holding his shield up over his head, and he says, oh, look, there's a hole burning through my shield. What's he going to do then? Just admire the nice flaming shield? No, he's going to throw it down from them, and now he has no defense, right? What are we going to do about that? Well, the defenses evolve again, so what do they do? They put a layer of thick leather over the front of the shield, and before the battle, everybody soaks their shield. There's your line. What am I going to tell you to do? I'm going to tell you to tie your shoes. You got that one. And I'm going to tell you to do what? Soak your shield. What, and he's thinking, what in the world do I soak my shield? This is why. Because the, the arrows will fly. The fiery darts will come, and they will go thunk into your shield. But if you soak that shield first in that water so that that thick leather cover is now a thick wet leather cover, then the, the arrow, when it hits, instead of going thunk, it goes sploosh. Right? And now you've got a chance to extinguish that fiery dart rather than it catching your shield on fire. See, the Romans are very clever. You see how warfare develops, and they are one step ahead of it all the time. That's why they were so successful. So then, now you're wondering, okay, I need to grow my shield. Told the kids that. I need a thick shield. I need to grow this, the, this shield thick and wide so that my faith in God and his character and his promise covers not just salvation itself, but it covers other aspects of my life and my walk with him. I know what God has said. I know who God is. And it's deep enough that it can withstand these arrows when they come. My faith is not paper thin so that it's easily penetrated by the enemy's lie or by the enemy's argument. But now also I have, I have soaked my shield. I have refreshed that faith regularly so that when these darts fly, and that's what he's talking about. You soak a shield, and what happens? Now it's wet. It extinguishes the darts, but then what happens? What happens to wet leather? It dries out. And then it's dry leather. And the fire marshal wouldn't like that. The fire marshal would say, hey, get that leather wet. And so you soak your shield again. You keep refreshing your faith. Some of you, maybe you said, hey, I settled this faith thing years ago. That's a dry old shield. I need to be daily refreshing refreshing my faith, refreshing myself in what I know about God. Because faith, trusting God, taking him at his word is essential to standing against the enemy's attacks. Darts will come. There will be distractions. There will be temptation. There will be, there will be deceit. There will be lies. They will, they will tell you, that. did God really say that? Does anybody really be How could you really know that for sure? And whittle away at your faith. This is more important. This is what really matters. If you're going to be, so you have to do this. You've got to compromise a little bit. You know, nobody's perfect. And all of these little lies and deceits will come. Chipping away at your faith, looking for inroads and opportunities, they will come. And yet we refresh our faith daily. We soak in God's truth. Refresh ourselves. What has God said? What is God like? You know, in terms of faith, you, you want to you wanna know about faith in the Bible. Where's one of those chapters that you go? Let's, let's brainstorm a little bit. What are some places where you go? You, what's a faith chapter in the Bible? Hebrews 11. I knew somebody would come up with it. I took a chance there. Yay. Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 tells us 
first of all, what faith is. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The thing that I long for, the thing that I want to be true, it's not merely I wish, I hope it's true. It's a confident expectation, yet I have not yet seen. And yet I'm confident in this expectation because God said so. It's the evidence of things I haven't yet seen. That's what faith is. Faith is a confidence, a believing in God's word. I believe that what God has said is true. The um, Hebrews, Hebrews also tells us, it gives us an example, it gives us this hall of faith, this description of these different people that believed God. Let me just summarize very briefly some of them. It says, Abraham obeyed when, when God called him to go. Abraham did what God said. He, how do we know Abraham believed God? Because when God said, go to a land that I'm going to show you, I'm not even telling you where we're going. I, I'll start the GPS, but I don't show you the destination. And Abraham says, okay, I'm going where God says. I'll turn. It's kind of like when I'm navigating with my wife. I'm a, I'm a big picture person. So when I'm driving and she's navigating, and she'll be, she's got her phone there, and she's telling me, okay, you're going to turn here. And you go, I wish I ha- I so wish I had the big picture because I'm a visual guy. If you had the big picture, the turns won't surprise me because I know, I mean, you tell me which street as we get there, but I know it's going to go this way and it's going to go that way and it's going to go back over here and then it's going to go up there. And I've got the whole bigger picture in my mind, so I'm, I'm good. I'm not anxious. Julie doesn't navigate. Now, don't tell her I picked on her in church, but Julie doesn't navigate that way. She gives me one turn at a time. She's Miss Garmin. You know, just turn by turn and only directions. But that's how God guided Abraham. He didn't know where he was going yet. And he just took him. He led them there step by step. And Abraham went. He obeyed. He left his home because he believed God. Sarah. It says that Sarah, Sarah believed God would do what he promised, as unlikely as it seemed, as hopeless as it seemed. There's no way that I'm going to be a mom, she says, because it's too late. The window of opportunity has passed me by. God did not bless me with a child, and it's not going to happen now. That's what would echo around in her head. And yet she chose, although it seemed laughable at first, she chose to believe God. That he would do what he said. Moses gave up. Moses, in terms of uh, believing God concerning who he was, Moses gave up the riches and the palaces of Egypt. He trades a palace in Egypt for the backside of a desert. He chose instead to suffer with God's people instead of enjoying the pleasures of sin for a short time, for a season. Rahab. Back to Jericho. Rahab trusted God instead of everything that her own people, her own culture, her own society were telling her. We live in Jericho, don't we? Our society, our culture tells us how things are. And yet we have said, no, it's not like that. It's different. That will not fulfill you. That seeming pleasure will not bring you fulfillment. There is a God that we are accountable to. There's a God who made us, who wants to give us the fullness of his life. There's a God who will forgive everything that I've done. There's a God who loves me and will embrace me into his family if only I receive the provision of forgiveness in his son. That's the reality. And as our culture pushes that aside, as our culture pushes that out of the public square and out of public discourse. Look at the peace that remains in our culture today. It's disintegrating before our eyes, and nobody's got an answer for it. Because peace comes by the forgiveness 
that is in the gospel. What's true about our relationship with God is also true in our relationship horizontally with one another. And we have believed that by faith. How do I grow that faith? How do I deepen that faith? If faith is my shield, how do I? I told the kids, grow your faith, deepen your faith. Okay, in the Bible, that's right, soaking in God's word, making the shield bigger. It applies to more areas of my life, making it deeper, that I'm more convinced of these things. I've seen it go deeper in God's word. I've seen it in Genesis. I've seen it in Isaiah, and I've seen it in John 3.16. In all three of those places I've seen it, it's much bigger than merely one obscure verse that I've pulled out and I'm leaning upon. My faith is deeper. You see it? But not only that, Hebrews 11 describes one after another. He says, there's more than I could tell. But you get to the end of Hebrews 11, and you get to Hebrews 12. And Hebrews 12 says, therefore, since we have so great of great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. We have so many who have gone before us and who have told us God is worth believing. God's word can be trusted. Have faith in God like we did. That's what the witnesses are. They're not watching us. They are testifying to us to the faithfulness of God. That's how they are witnesses. They're witnesses of God's faithfulness. And we can believe him too. Since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which easily besets us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Specifically, you want to feed your, your faith? Open the Gospels. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand, has been exalted, raised up, exalted, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Feed your faith on him. And especially as you're reading through one of those gospels this time, look for who he is, what he's like. Look for the specifics of this Jesus who was determined to die in my place. This Jesus who was determined, even against those who would persecute and reject him, who was determined to say, I will die in their place. He set his face like a flint for Jerusalem. He, he, he continually extended grace and mercy to people around him, whether they deserved it or not, showing them who he was, what he was like, the life that he could give. Fix your eyes upon Jesus and you will strengthen your faith. Not only that, these shields locked together. These shields, I, I described how they could form a wall. I described how they could form a ceiling, a solid ceiling that the whole battalion of soldiers could be shielded together by. There is times when we not only soak our shield, but there's a time when we lock our shields. And that's something Julie and I have experienced. At one point in this last week with things going on with her dad, he's, he's still in the ICU. We're, we're having, it's kind of one of those two steps forward, one step back. And so there's good news, there's progress, but then there's also a, a, a minor setback to that. So it's not in the midst of the yay, it's like, oh. And so, um, for instance, his heart is strong enough now that we're able to take out the last little impella pump, which is a small pump that was, was, was run up a catheter from his femoral artery all the way up into his aorta, and it assists the pumping of the heart. So the heart actually is strengthened because it's exercising, but it's not, it's not doing all the work. It doesn't have all the pressure. It's kind of like riding a tandem bicycle, and you're on the back, and you're only contributing what you're up to contributing. But you're still getting exercise. The person up front thinks you're working real hard, right? But they're really pulling you along. That's what this little pump does, okay? And, but it came time. His heart was strong enough that they could pull that out. Yay! That's good news. And yet when they pulled it out, part of it stayed behind. 
Ooh, that's bad news. I feel like we're playing this game where, you know, somebody falls out of the airplane. Bad news. Good news. He's got a parachute. Bad news. The parachute doesn't open. Good news. There's a, there's a, a haystack right underneath him. The bad news is the pitchfork sticking up in the haystack. Good news. He missed the piss, pitchfork. Bad news. He missed the haystack. You know, I feel like I'm playing that game. And yet, and, and, and then other stuff starts happening. Other stuff starts dropping out on us. And there's, a, there's this other stuff going on over here. And then, then we're having some car troubles going on as well. And, 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 and at one point, Julie said to me, I feel like we're, we're, we're just being overwhelmed from every direction. It reminded me of when we were headed up to um, um, North Carolina to meet with Transworld Radio, to be interviewed, kind of like a candidate interview orientation thing. This was going to be the time when we would decide if we would be invited to join this mission organization and go off to Africa. And all of a sudden, things started dropping out all over. We had all kinds of trouble started coming our way. It kind of felt, felt like that, but different now. It's personal. This is dad. This is, this is emotionally different. And yet, we just, we paused in the midst of all the different directions, all the arrows coming, we reminded ourselves together and we prayed. But in our prayer, we reminded ourselves of what we know to be true about God. That our God is able. Our God is sovereign. He's the one who sits on the throne. On the throne. Remember that good news that is in Isaiah 52? The good news that comes from the one over the mountain? Your God reigns. God is sovereign. He's in charge here. God is able to give life from the dead. He has done that for us. God is able to whisper by his spirit in, in hope and encouragement into dad's soul, even if he doesn't yet hear us. God is able if a surgeon can do it for 40 minutes, hold his heart in his own hands, God is able to hold him in his hands. And so we can trust him to God. God is able to do this. God has him. God has us. We remind God does not want him to perish. God is able to bring a valley full of dead bones up into a standing army. God has got George. Whatever happens, we have that confidence. Along the way, our shields were also locked together with you. Many of you have been praying. You've sent us messages back, as I, or I've sent an update here and there, and you've let us know that you're praying for us. There are some of you that is, have sent practical help in tangible ways to us as an encouragement to us. We need to do that. We need to not only strengthen our shields. Not, we don't want to try to have, I have got the best shield in the room. Look at my shield. Why isn't your shield like this? No. We need to lock those shields together. Encourage one another. Why is it that you come to church? Hebrews 10 tells us, don't forsake this assembling of yourselves together, as is the habit of some, but come together encouraging one another, provoking one another to love and good, news, good deeds, and all the more as you see an evil day approaching. You know, Neil Anderson refers to the flaming darts of the, of the enemy as smoldering lies, burning accusations, fiery temptations. They bombard our minds he says, whenever you discern a deceptive thought, an accusation, a temptation, meet it head on with what you know to be true about God. Shield yourself with statements from God's word. You don't know how to pray. Open up your Bible and begin to pray God's word. Interact with God's promise as you pray. Open up to a psalm, whether it's a psalm of hope, maybe it's a psalm of despair. Watch those psalms of despair. They tend to turn into hope as we set our eyes on him. 
Remind yourself of what you need, what you know to be true. We grow our faith wider. We grow our faith deeper of reminding ourselves who our God is and what he has already done for us. One of the things I want us to do before we close, I want us to stand up. This came to me in first service after the message. I want to I grab hold of it right now while you're, while you're all out there in front of me where I can keep an eye on you. The worship team was hiding behind me before. I didn't know what they were up to first service. But I want us to lock shields in a sense. I want us to come across the aisle. Don't leave that gap in the middle. Let's not have these, these uh, big aisles of division between us. But I want you to come across and just put an arm on the shoulder of the person next to you. You know, there are all kinds of hurts and pains and discouragement and doubt in this room. And I want us to just put an arm on one another. And I want us to quietly and together pray. And maybe there's something in your own heart. Maybe there's something that you would just lift up quietly with the people around you and, and just voice that in prayer. And I'm going to lead us in prayer too. And I want us to pray for one another. I want us to lock shields together in our confidence together in our God because there are times when any one of us are not strong enough. We can't even, my arm is wounded, I cannot hold up my own shield. And someone else next to me will hold it up for me. Let's pray. Father, you know the troubles. You know the discouragement. You know the, the word of those who are, who are sick or weak in hospital who have been threatened by a diagnosis. You know the anxiety of our hearts for those that we love. Father, you know the weakness of our hearts. You know the temptations that we have taken in as arrows between our armor. You know where the enemy has succeeded and where he has gained a foothold. And Father, we need to be strengthened in who you are and your help for us. Father, you know the, the um, responses that well up in our heart, whether they are worry and anxiety, whether they are anger, even rage. Sometimes that is expressed toward others around us. Sometimes it might even be expressed toward you. Lord, forgive us for what's in our own heart. And Father, strengthen us together. Lord, remind us of who we are in Jesus, that we have peace with you through our Lord Jesus Christ, that you have made us your own children, that you have caused us to be heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ, that you have redeemed us, that you have forgiven us, that you have accepted us in your beloved Son, that we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit, and your Spirit has given us a oneness, a unity together of hope in Christ. Oh, Father, help us guard that unity. Help us to not look, Lord, on any weakness that we have in one another. We won't look on that with disdain. We will not look down. Instead, we will look up. Lord, help us to direct one another's gaze toward Jesus. Cause us, Father, to remind one another of those things of you that we know to be true. And thus, Lord, widen our shields and deepen them, thicken them together. Lord, we will trust you. We will walk by faith and not by sight. We will walk by faith. We will stand by faith in the true and the living God, no matter how the enemy might oppose us. Our hope and our confidence is in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all those who agree said,